We want to talk today about a living faith. And I begin with a statement on the misunderstanding the ancients of the Asians. This text from Hebrews is called the By Faith Chapter for obvious reasons. The activities of these people were all characterized by faith in God. And one problem in reading a text like this is our tendency to particularize it and suggest, at least in our hearts, if not out loud, that these people lived this way because of a special grace given to them by God. In other words, they were super saints who lived in an era of unscientific knowledge and with a little of the modern miracles associated with our mechanized age. And so, of course, they trusted God. That's the thought. And in that trust, they were rewarded with some phenomenal events in their lives. Enoch was translated to glory without experiencing death. You know that in your studies. Noah built a gigantuous ship to save his family and house the animal kingdom for repopulation after the great flood. Abraham and Sarah were able to conceive in their 90s, well past the age of procreative abilities, and so on and so on. But today, if scientists are not able to whisk someone away to heaven, they are nonetheless experimenting with cryogenics. Let me read a paragraph on what is meant by that. In the United States of America, there are currently two organizations that offer the Cryogronics Institute in... Excuse me, I missed a line. There are two organizations that offer the chance for a future second life. The Cryogenic Institute in Clinton Township, Michigan. Did you know that? And Alcor in Scottsdale, Arizona. There's the two places in our country. After they die, patients' bodies are preserved in chemicals designed to theoretically protect cellular structure before being lowered into steel tubes of liquid nitrogen called DWARS. And here they will face an indefinite wait at 196 degrees centigrade in the hope that medical science will discover a way to bring them back to life in the future. By the way, I was driving down I-69 one day, coming back from Flint, and here comes this truck passing me, and on the side of the truck was marked cryogenic transport. So I'm assuming there were some, these tubes in there, or maybe even people in the tubes. I don't know how they were doing all that. But anyway, it was active. 
the idea is that there might be in the future some healing for a hereditary disease that a person has. So you freeze them and you wait till the discovery for the disease uh, medicine or surgery or whatever has been completed or is known about, and then you unfreeze them, give them the medicine, and restore them to life. There are currently over 100 people in cryogenic suspension with another 1,000 members waiting for their chance to go into the deep freeze. None of this, however, addresses the soul. They never thought about that. Okay, you're freezing the body, and then you thaw it out, and you're going to try to bring it back to life. Where's the soul been all this time? Well, they don't believe in that kind of stuff. So my thought is, no soul, no life. And they can unfreeze it all they want, get out the paddles and charge it with electricity, do whatever they're going to do, and it ain't going to work. Even newer technology is that of cloning. Let me read an article on that. A controversial fertile fertility doctor told British reporters that he had cloned 14 human embryos and transferred 11 of these into the uteruses of four women. The physician operates fertility clinics in Kentucky and Cyprus. And he says none of the embryos gave rise to successful pregnancies, so they all failed. But, he went on to say, I am confident that baby cloning is just around the corner. There is absolutely no doubt about it, and I may not be the one who does it, but the clone child is coming, Dr. Zavas said to the Independent, which was a newspaper. And he added, if we intensify our efforts, we can have a cloned baby within a year or two. And, quote, this is what our scientists are playing with in our country. Again, any modern shipyard could easily construct a ship larger and more intricate than Noah's Ark. We have vessels that sail the seas twice as large as Noah's Ark. My point is that people may conclude that faith in God has outlived its usefulness, whether in the health industry or in the mechanical industry, now that modern science is in the picture. 
we may even think that the faith of those in bygone eras was more the expression of superstition than a reasonable act of the mind, and so we are ready to dismiss it as obsolete and archaic and maybe even stupid to be a person of faith. Certainly not something for the modern-day person. Look, however, at verse 13 of our text. After listening, listing all these people who lived their lives by faith, it says all these people were still living by faith when they died. This tells us that their faith in God was not sporadic, nor momentary, but an ongoing thing. They believed in God as much for their daily lives as they did for the biggie events which are immortalized in this chapter. They believed in God for the little things in life and not just for the times of trial or times of great testing. God was not sitting on the back burner waiting to be energized when danger encroached. Rather, he was at the forefront of all that they did. Verse 13 says, this is their confession, they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. That's a Hebrews 11.13. And the commentary is given in the next verse, Hebrews 11.14. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. Verse 16, a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It is not as some have mocked. Yeah, they were so heavenly minded that they weren't any earthly good. Have you heard that expression? I have. No, these people did much good in their day. Enoch preached and warned of the coming flood of judgment. Noah's flood. If you want to read his sermon, it's in the book of Jude. You can read it. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. And he preached as well in the day before the flood. Abraham fathered a nation of believing people who have blessed the world with the scriptures of God, the covenants, the promises, and most importantly, the Savior. All in his bloodline. but they live their lives in this world by faith in God and not by human wits. Again, verse 13 tells us that this faith accompanied them all the way to death and that at their death they did not receive the things promised, they only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. This tells us that their faith did not always result in tangible assets, 
but they believed anyway because of the character of the one who had made the promises to them. That is God. And brethren, this is the very essence of faith. The world is always saying, prove it to me, prove it to me, prove it to me. They want to see it with their eyes, touch it with their hands, walk up to it with their feet. And they're, of course, suggesting to us, if all of that can happen, then we'll believe. But they won't. Faith is a gift of God. Saving faith is a gift of God. Verse 1 of our text says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Oh. This is what the ancients were commended for. So the writer is saying they didn't always have the immediate feedback to act as a crutch for them to lean on. Sometimes they had to believe God when there was no immediate confirmation, when there was nothing there to assure anything except the raw, naked word from God. That's all they had. But that was good enough. Could they, may I ask, would they bank their actions upon God's word and that alone? Yes, they did. But do we? Do we? We need to mimic the ancients. Paul gave this testimony to the churches of Galatia in chapter 2, verse 20. He writes, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We are all familiar with the importance faith in God plays in the salvation experience. We can recall the verses. Acts 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household said to Cornelius. Or John three sixteen. We all know it. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But I ask the question, is this Paul's point when he says in Galatians 2, verse 20, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. Or again, 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith, not by sight. And in the context, he goes on to say, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in this 
body, we are away from the Lord. But the truth is, while living in a physical body, possessing a physical body in this physical world, nonetheless, we live by faith in the unseen Lord. Faith in God is absolutely essential in beginning the Christian life. Faith brings God into our lives. We take hold of God by faith and believe in him and his promises. But the Christian life is more than beginnings. And faith in God is for more than an entrance into the eternal life promised in Christ. Faith in God is for the day-to-day existence we call life. Like the subjects of our text. It says, they were still living by faith when death overtook them. So faith had to be more than just becoming a Christian. It had to do with living as a Christian in this world, still living by faith when death overtook them. So for them, faith was not simply a beginning way to find God. It was the only way to live the new life which God had given. For the New Testament believer, we would say with Paul, I was crucified with Christ, and I died to all that I was and all the ways I used to run my own life. Boy, what a statement. I died to that. Let me read it again. I died to all the ways I used to run my own life. How did you and I run our own lives before we knew God? Well, whatever we we did, it wasn't by divine faith. Most likely it was by human faith, faith in ourselves, which brings me to definitions. How do we define faith? Some teach faith in God as an upper-tier development of man's own potentials, as an enabler. If you have faith... You, you are enabled to do certain things with that ability. Robert Schuller's ministry in the Crystal Cathedral of California was nothing more than this. Schuller, a student of Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, who proposed the power of positive thinking, propagated 
that teaching or that philosophy, which became the foundation of Schuller's theology. The rationale here is that God is acknowledged as being essential to any life of faith, but essential in this sense. You need God in your life to develop your full potential. Hmm. There must be a partnership between God and you in order for you to achieve in life all that you are capable of doing and of becoming. Say, well, what's wrong with that? Lots. But let me throw out the main things of the Scripture. What is missing is a call to repentance. What is missing is the call to renounce sin and to confess one's total inability to do anything spiritually pleasing to God. What is notably absent is this power of positive thinking view of faith that denies that saving faith is the work of God, not our own hearts. But basically he was saying, nothing needs to be subtracted from your life. You just need something added to what you already are. Uh, God needs to be added. You plus God can go places and <laughs> do things that you could never attain on your own. Let me tell you that all of this falls woefully short of the faith in God of which the Bible speaks and for which God commended the ancients, verse 2. Still, another error in defining faith deserves attention, and that is the error of fideism. Getting a little theological here this morning, but it will help you. Fideism. F-I-D-E-I-S-M. Fideism is faith in faith. Faith in faith. Hmm. In Fideism, an object of faith is not essential. It can be yourself. It can be faith in another human being. It can be faith in God. It can be faith in an inanimate object like an automobile. Or it can be faith in an organization like the government. The object of faith is not important. What is important is that you believe. That's what's important. You just need to practice believing. 
It is the new age concept that wishing makes it so. If you believe it, whatever you believe has the power of becoming reality. You can believe it into existence. Oh, isn't that so nice? Fluffy and It's a modern takeoff on the child's story. The little engine that could. Think of a family traveling up a long winding road in the Colorado Rockies in their worn out 86 Chevy, which is straining on all cylinders to make the grade. Pretty steep grade. The wife is biting her fingernails. The kids are abnormally quiet. And the husband turns to his wife and he says, We'll make it. Just have a little faith. Old Betsy will see us through. That's fightism. That's faith in the old car will enable the car to cross the mountain. But this kind of faith is irrational. It's insane. It's stupid. The truth of the matter is that if the car makes it over the mountain, it will simply mean that the worn-out parts did not give out on that occasion. And faith had nothing to do with it. Many people have this, I call it the magical view of faith. They think that believing makes things happen as though somehow there are, <coughs> I don't know, invisible, omnipotent thought waves which cross the air from the person believing to the thing they believe in. And that causes it to conform to their thoughts. That's pure mysticism. And it doesn't have an ounce of gospel in it. You can think that the world is square. As some of the old world did. You can think that from now until judgment day. Yet that belief won't make it so. It is reason gone berserk. It's ethereal madness. What then is true biblical faith? Well, the definition on our text has some limitations because you could say much more, but it does say wonderful two things about it. By the way, it's not meant to say everything that faith is, but the author is at least going to emphasize two characteristics which stand out about saving faith. Number one, biblical faith has as its object the person and work of God. Verse two, 
And I begin here to show that the faith spoken of is not faith in the faith of fideism. It's not just faith that is somehow out there with no objective reality and no rational thought in it. Faith in faith. How stupid. Verse 2 gives an example of biblical faith in action. It has to do with the creation of the universe. And the faith part of the equation comes in the fact that no one from humanity was present at the time of creation to see how it was accomplished. So how do we know that what is seen was not made out of what was visible? How do we draw the conclusion that the material earth came into existence from invisible entities? You weren't there. Moses wasn't there. He's the one that wrote the book of Genesis. No one was there. No one saw it happen. So who's to say that the evolutionists are wrong and the creationists are right? Let me read it for you. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Here the faith is not in faith, nor is it faith in our own perceptions. Again, we weren't there, so who cares what we think? Our faith, however, has God as its object, the God who was there, and who graciously told us in the Bible what occurred, and that's what you can read in Genesis 1. <coughs> God tells us what happened. Or the psalmist, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the peoples of the world revere him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood fast. Psalm 33, verse 6 and following. And this writer is speaking very confidently, isn't he? Doesn't sound like he has any doubts whatsoever as to how the universe came about. How can this be for someone who was not there to see These things happen. Verse 1. Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. In other words, his confidence is in God and God's word. He's not trusting his own perceptions as the sole basis for what he believes and dismissing everything else at hand. Anything unperceivable to his own senses. 
Well, then is biblical faith irrational because it believes in things the human eye cannot see. Second point. The second characteristic about biblical faith is that it is not irrational. It is not a leap into ignorance, verse 3 of our text. By faith we understand. The thought process is brought in. Perspection comes to play. Reason is in play. The world portrays Christians as unenlightened, unintelligent individuals who are full of emotion and superstition. They are reinforced in that characteristic by the shenanigans that go on in the name of faith on television and in the faith crusades of such clowns as Benny Hinn, Ken Copeland, Tillich, Ainsley, and others. And when that's all the Christianity, and I put that in quotes, that the world gets to analyze, it's little wonder that they think of us as a bunch of half-wits. A few bricks shy of a full load. You guys are only one foot away from the loony farm. The biblical faith is not for morons and clowns. It deals with the deep issues of philosophy and wrestles with the most profound issues which confront the human mind, the origin of all things, the why of human existence, the future of the planet and civilization, the reality an operation of God in a universe of his own making, and on and on and on. These are not things for the simple-minded. Brethren, there are two sources of knowledge. This is true for all men. Two types of faith, two sources of knowledge. Let's use the origin of the universe as our test case. Consider this business of the existing universe. From where did it come? Had to come from somewhere. Are the evolutionists right? Now understand something here. No evolutionist was present to see the earth formed and the vegetation emerge, and the fish become amphibians, and the amphibians become reptiles, and the reptiles become animals. No evolutionist was there. His theory of origins is as much a system of faith as is the concept of origins held up by the Christian believer. But there's this notable difference. The Christian's understanding of origins is based on God's revelation, whereas the evolutionist's understanding is based upon his own imagination of what occurred. So, there are two sources 
of knowledge open to us as human beings. One is revelation from God. He just tells us, boom, what he did, what happened. And the second source is science, human science. By revelation, we mean that God discloses to us, he reveals what he knows to us without any prerequisite on our part to investigate or research in order to discover the truth. No, by faith we understand that the universe was formed by God's command. Wow. Boom. There you go. Where do we obtain this information? From the Bible. This is a freebie. We didn't have to work to get this information. It's just freely observed by the God who was there. And truth of this nature, truth that comes by way of divine revelation, is absolute. That is to say, it never changes. It will never be untrue. Wow, this is good stuff. We could also say this about every other kind of revealed truth in the Bible. God's decrees to save sinners from their sin, his forgiveness and cleansing from sin based on the substitute Jesus Christ. These are things not open for man to search and discover. No, we have been told these things outright by the God who knows. Wow. So that's one way we get knowledge. It's one way we have it. The God who knows all things just blurts it out, writes it down. The other source of knowledge, number two, is through the scientific method. We postulate a hypothesis, we investigate. We try to prove the hypothesis, and if it holds water, we develop a theory which then becomes the operating principle until and unless such time that more knowledge is discovered which may alter the theory or discredit it completely so that it has to be abandoned by reasonable men. The world of unbelievers is used to working with scientific knowledge. It has no acquaintance with revelational knowledge that comes from God. They don't read the Bible. They don't study God's declarations about the universe. We do, they don't. And because science may discover something new, truth is considered relative. In science, truth is relative because what's true today, in theory, may be, will have to change tomorrow when some new discovery comes along. But then, if it has to be changed, was it really true? 
in the first place. Think about it. Workability is not the test of truth. Ptolemy's theory of the earth was that the earth was the center of the universe, our universe, and that held true to be true for centuries because he was able to demonstrate how it worked and explain the aberrations. But Ptolemy was wrong. He was wrong. So along comes a guy named Copernicus, and he demonstrated that the sun, S-U-N, and not the earth, was the center of our system. How did he discover that? Far-reaching telescope proved, telescope proved Copernicus to be right. And of course, now we have the wonderful, powerful new Hubble that reaches out into multiple universes. So the bottom line here then, with regard to the origin of the universe, is this. The evolutionist believes that the earth and all of life forms come into existence through the self-generating process of evolution. He wasn't there to see this. He hypothesizes that such was the case, and he accepts it by faith. But in this case, such faith is totally irrational, not rational. It's irrational, for there's not one shred of evidence to substantiate evolution from the investigative data. There's not one fossil remains showing transition from one species to another. Did you know that? After all these centuries, there's not one frozen species of cross-evolution, a creature being moved by evolution to become another creature. Oh, we got it in the frozen tundra. No, they didn't find any. They have found none. There's not one frozen species of cross-evolution. Transition. Not even an accurate dating procedure to show that the Earth is billions of years old. Lava flows in the Grand Canyon known to be only 200 years old, test out billions of years old through radiocarbon dating. How can that be? What's the hurdle? Well, they discovered that as the lava flows from the center of the earth, up through the earth and through all that soil and sand and silt and rocks and so forth, the lava loses some of its 
radioactive atoms in the ascent to the Earth's surface. So it comes out giving a wrong reading of its age. But the biggest hurdle that evolutionists have is how do you get life from non-life? Life from non-life. On the other hand, the Christian believes the word of the God who was there, the word of the all-knowing God who will never have to alter his revelations because of a, oh, a new discovery. We accept God's word by faith, just like the evolutionist accepts his theory by faith, but in our case, the faith is not irrational. For everything in the fossil record, we have proof of no evolutionary process. Each species appears fully formed and distinct from all the rest. And the vast amount of fossils worldwide substantiates the worldwide flood of Noah's day. That explains why they find fossils so well preserved. Because it was a whew, flood, 40 days, whew, and then silt and mud and stone and calcification all at once. So they find fish fossils on the highest mountains in the world. How'd they get there? Fish fossils. Well, Noah's flood took them there. That's how they got there. So they scratch their head and they try to come up with some fancy theory rather than interrelated inter, inter to the Word of God. So whose faith is irrational here? Brethren, it is never irrational and against reason to believe in the revelation of the God who cannot and does not lie. The God who knows all things from beginning to end. The God who precedes both time and space. The Christian is not afraid of honest science, for by it the revelations of God are confirmed and our faith is justified. And so faith in God is not stupid. It is not anti-intellectual. It is not against reason. Rather, to believe God is the sanest thing a person can do. To have faith in his revelation is to open doors of knowledge that no human being on his own can discover. We are light years ahead of our contemporaries in understanding the workings of our universe. By faith in God's word, 
we know more about the origin of life than the evolutionists. By faith, we know more about human nature than the psychologists. We understand more about child rearing than the child sociologists. More about education than the State Board of Education. More about a profit, proper work ethic than the Department of Labor. We know more about criminal rehabilitation than the Justice Department. But will the world listen to us? No. Their pride won't allow them to do that. Nor will Satan, who has captured their minds, to believe and practice only what they can conceive. This brings me to finding God through trusting faith. Biblical faith consists of entrusting oneself to God in Christ, not simply believing the biblical facts about God in Christ. If the truth be told, many, many people believe that they are born-again Christians because they accept as true what the Bible says about Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. They say, oh, of course I'm a Christian. I believe those things. If you were to question such on the doctrine of God or the doctrine of salvation, if they've been good Bible students under their pastors, they would be able to recite to you the biblical doctrines with astounding clarity and accuracy. They would. I have known people who have a working grasp of election and predestination, the decrees of God, the attributes of God, the character and ministry of Jesus, how sinners are reconciled to God, you name it, they can recite it. In some cases, these people have gone off to seminary or further theological education, and they have surpassed their former pastors and teachers in what they know. But, despite all of this education, despite all this grasp of theological facts, they're lost and as dead as a stone in a farmer's field. The difference is like someone sitting on a bar stool, puffing on a cigar, chugging down a mug of beer with a copy of Playboy open on the counter, all the while pontificating on the biblical doctrine of sanctification and how God's people are indwelled by the Holy Spirit and how they are chosen vessels for the master's use, and how they are to be holy priesthoods for God. By the way, I know a man like this. A professor like this. Such a person may even give chapter and verse. But, though the teaching is true, there's something very wrong, very shallow, very defective in a man's faith who can teach the truth to others and never have the truth touch him or her, as the case may be. What is the difference between a faith that believes 
and a faith that entrusts. What faith pleases God? Verse 6 of our text. Friends, the difference between a faith in facts and a faith that entrusts is that a faith which simply knows always falls short of, get it now, always falls short of commitment. Commitment. Without commitment to the truth you know, there is no pleasing God. And ultimately, no salvation. Many people live their whole lives like this, mistaking faith in facts about God as the equivalent of faith in God. Well, entrusting faith, that's for others, not for them. They live by their own wits. Sadly, I must tell you that without commitment, you're lost. You're lost. There's no pleasing God. No marvelous intervention from God. Preaching the party line can be done by any able student. Living the truth we preach, living the truth we confess to know is the mark of God's gift of faith in your life. God never grants us faith simply to be intellectually adept at reading and understanding the Bible. Faith is given for one reason and one reason alone. And that is that we might actually cast ourselves upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and rest completely and only in his saving power. To stand on the precipice of hell and to believe in God, to believe in Jesus, to believe in the Bible, to believe in salvation by grace, will surely not preserve you from the fiery judgments to come. It isn't what you know about Jesus that saves. It's Jesus. You get the distinction? Not what you know about him. It's him. It isn't what you know about repentance and faith that brings you close to God. It's repentance and faith. It isn't believing that Jesus has the power to cleanse from sin. It's taking the plunge into his precious blood and coming out washed whiter than snow. Again, commit. And if you've truly done this, having begun the new life of God and faith, why have you backed away from faith now? that you are older in the Lord. 
I hope you haven't done that. We are to live the life we live by faith in the Son of God. This means that you're not always going to be able to proceed on the basis of having worked out every detail of the plan to your own personal satisfaction and curiosity. There will always be mystery to God till we get to glory. Paul told the Corinthians, you claim to know, but you have not known as you need to know. Yes, we have some knowledge. Hopefully we're learning every day. But there's so much we don't know. Some things demand that we take a step with God that may not be supported by all the economic strategies of the world. So I'm calling you back to a life of faith today, a life of commitment to God that you might behave like you say you believe. That's what God wants in his people. And if you behave like you believe and you believe in Christ as the only Savior, God will save you, and you'll have peace in your life. God is not about charlatans, although there's a lot of them around. He's not about make-believe Christians. He's looking for the real McCoy, the genuine pearl. Lord, I pray that you will show us the distinctions today. We thank you for the fact that the gospel comes to us as a revelation from God, not messed up by man, but strictly as a revelation from you. But we're called upon to believe it and act upon it, and I pray that that will be the case. I want for everyone here to know Christ truly as Savior and Lord and to live their life in such a way that will be pleasing to the Lord and demonstrate that, yes, they've come to know the God of the universe, the holy God of the universe. Teach us these things by your Holy Spirit. Draw us to yourself for your own glory, and for our good, we pray. Amen. Our closing hymn is 100 in Trinity. 100 in the red hymnal.
Praise thee, O God, for being who you are. Unbelievably holy. Cannot be corrupted. You cannot lie. You cannot deceive. You cannot cowtail to the disobedient and the rebellion. But you're also righteous. And when your word comes to our hearts, you send your spirit to convict us and to remind us that we are we're just men, sinful ones at that. We need your grace to come to know you. We want to know you better. That's why we study the Bible. That's why we study Christian history. We want to see the moving of God through the centuries and in our own country, in our own day. We want to know how we can live the Christian life before the watching world, and especially before our families whom we love. We want our children to come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. We want to have them have the peace of forgiveness and the joy of sins washed away and the reality that a life awaits them, that it's wonderful because they've made peace with God. Bless us all in that quest. And we'll praise you for what you do in our lives. And again, I thank you for your word. If we didn't have it, we wouldn't know all this. But we do thank you that you preserved your word. And you gave it to us. Revelation. Didn't ask for it, you just gave it to us. Through the power of your prophets. In Christ's name we thank you.
we are dismissed. Hmm? I, thought somebody, I thought you said something. Well, you just keep practicing and you'll get better. <laughs> 